Hey everybody, this is J.R. DeRose, and we are back with another episode of Outside the 90. I know it's been a while, and I've been getting a lot of questions about why I haven't been recording very much during the lockdown. I'm sorry about this, I should have been doing more recording, but I haven't stopped working on the brand. Although, I'm not quite ready to announce what I've been doing for the past 8 or 9 months. Uh, COVID-19 lockdowns have given me a chance to work on a project that I've wanted to complete for uh, a very long time now. And I'm pretty proud of it, but it's still a ways away from being ready to be shared with people. Uh, but that being said, I just want everybody to know that I'm still concentrating on this genre within U.S. soccer. Uh, so with all that out of the way, I knew it would take a pretty special development for me to hop back on the mic and talk soccer in America with how busy I've been with that other project. But as I am sure that any MLS fans are aware... There is a current collective bargaining agreement negotiation going on as we speak between Major League Soccer and the Major League Soccer Players Association, or MLSPA for short. I've always been fascinated by the idea of a players' union in sports, and with the MLSPA being, if not entirely unique, then heavily differentiated among most other professional soccer leagues that listeners may be familiar with. So essentially, the MLSPA is just a rebranded name for the MLS Players Union. And the union's goal, like the goal of most unions, both internally and externally of the sports world, is to raise the condition of laborers in the workplace. In sports, these laborers are the players. And the conditions are generally a combination of economic and quality of life standards. To understand the importance of the union, it's important to establish what they have accomplished from a historical viewpoint. Since the MLSPA's inception in 2003, the association's main task has been to negotiate collective bargaining agreements with the league. Since its founding, the MLSPA has negotiated four collective bargaining agreements and has increased both the working conditions and the economic terms of the players substantially over the last 15 years. In the first CBA alone, the union was able to guarantee health insurance for all players, create an arbitration system, institute free agency, raise the minimum league salary, and allow for the institution of player 401k options. We can accept that these are good things. Some may even say that these are essential duties of employers. But we need to take a step back and ask why these negotiations are different from other major sports leagues. If you follow other mainstream major North American sports, you are extremely familiar with player unions. Just at the beginning of the lockdown, Major League Baseball had a massive dispute between players and owners that erupted into what is, at least from the standpoint of the public, seemed to be a a pretty petty squabble about money. The NBA and NFL have seen their fair shares of lockouts and strikes as well. Yet, Major League Soccer is different than these other leagues for a few reasons. The first is extremely noticeable when contrasted with the Major League Baseball squabble of this past year. In other leagues, we often hear that the owners are behind the dealings and the players and owners have conflicting interests that require some sort of negotiation. In Major League Soccer, holding firm with that closely held single entity structure that they've always lobbied and talked about at length, the league generally coalesces around one single voice. That voice, for the past 20 years, has been Don Garber. That is not to imply that the disputes between the MLSPA and Major League Soccer do not exist outside of the owners. Don Garber is essentially a representative of the owners. That being said, his voice is the only one that we generally hear when it comes to contract negotiation disputes, anything like a CBA dispute, 
All of that generally comes from Don Garber, and the owners generally avoid any fallout in the press in those situations. But due to the natural tension between bosses and workers, there's always going to be some sort of conflict. It's only natural for owners to want to minimize costs. Many of those costs are associated with labor costs. And the goal of the players is always going to be to maximize benefits. It's always going to be a teeter-totter. On the flip side of the coin, where the league operates similar to other major sports leagues in America, they are exceedingly different from other global soccer leagues. Do other players have a type of union? Uh, kind of, but not really. There is a global players union, but due to the challenges of each domestic league being so interconnected internationally, it's difficult to negotiate wages from the standpoint of a union on a global stand. The global union is more concerned with trends that can be replicated, well, globally. The most easily recognizable and addressable issue that they would deal with would be lengthening the competitive calendar or shortening the competitive calendar to better align with the interests of the players. Despite its similarities and differences that either unify or contrast Major League Soccer with the global game or its American professional sports scene counterparts, there is one thing about Major League Soccer that makes it unique from both camps that we have highlighted. Since the league's inception, it has never once yielded a profit. That's the kicker. You may at this point be asking, how can the players go to the table demanding increases to economic and working conditions when the league itself is not making any money. This will sort of lead us into the leverage conversation that exists in any negotiation. So obviously that statement is a little bit shocking. It's also pretty misleading. Whereas the league itself has never yielded a profit, they are adding value for owners, and a lot of it. To give an idea of the scale of this added value, Toronto FC was given the rights to be an MLS expansion side for $10 million in 2007. If you have been following recent news, you know that Charlotte recently paid $325 million to be an MLS expansion team. So the next question is, if the league and with it most of the clubs are in the red, where is all of this added value coming from? Now, there are several explanations for how the league is swinging this business model. Explanations range from the Machiavellian in nature to just altering some accounting methods to make the league look like a better league down the line. To start with the Machiavellian type of answer, some pundits accuse Major League Soccer of running a Ponzi scheme. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, MLS is thought by many to be essentially running a billion dollar Instagram fitness and diet pyramid scheme. The idea is that the only way Major League Soccer is appearing to be operating a successful business model is predicated on the fact that they are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in cash injections from expansion franchises every few years. The fear, or the hope for MLS haters, is that when the cash injections stop, so does the growth. And the MLS is revealed to have an unsustainable business model. The positive explanation for the red books that MLS is reporting is that Don Garber is heavily pushing investment to satisfy the extreme growth of the league. Many observers claim that a lot of the clubs showing red could be net positive if they neglected investments in academies, new stadiums, and expensive designated players. Are these investments going to pay dividends later? It's promising. 
As far as academy investments go, you only have to look at the Philadelphia Union in the last six months to see that you can cover the expenses of running a fully funded academy with the sale of one or two high-dollar players every few years. With the league rules dictating that now 100% of the fee paid for a homegrown player goes to the club, the Philadelphia Union are estimated to receive about 15-ish million dollars from the sale of two homegrown players this year. As far as stadiums go, many of the new stadiums are being supported by the cities in which the expansion teams are located. This essentially means that the sticker price of the stadium is going to be offset by the city that it is located in. However, the asset can still be sold by the owner at a later date when they eventually sell the team. This is another perk. Designated players are interesting because they can cost a lot of money and are primarily bought to make your team better, but they also increase ticket sales and make television deals more attractive and lucrative. This brings us back to that misleading statistic. Yes, MLS has never been profitable. Soccer United Marketing, on the other hand, is very profitable. Oh, and yeah, it's entirely owned by Major League Soccer. And by owned by Major League Soccer, I mean it's owned by the owners of Major League Soccer. Soccer United functions like most television marketing firms around the world. Like the Premier League, they control who broadcasts MLS games. But there's a major difference that separates Soccer United marketing from any other media rights group of its peer group. They control a portion of all American soccer rights. So that means any international friendly played in the United States or any Gold Cup hosted by the U.S. has to go through Soccer United marketing. The relationship that SUM has with the United States Soccer Federation is that SUM essentially pays the USSF an upfront fee that essentially allows for the Federation to mitigate risk. An example is would be if one of the national team programs were to miss a World Cup. The Federation would still get paid. The other benefit is that the Federation realizes that a secure payment from SUM allows for them to better plan their budget spending. Soccer United Marketing then goes on to employ hundreds of media professionals who drive the commercial arm of soccer in America to generate higher revenues. The returns then go to the owners of SUM, who just so happen to be the same owners of that not-yet-profitable league, Major League Soccer. SUM also has had the long-standing agreement with the Mexican Football Federation for promoting its games in the United States. This is another massive market. So the benefits of buying into MLS go much deeper than just the league itself. The money is coming from all over. That's why being in the red is not entirely indicative of the success of being an MLS owner. The value from the owner's perspective leads us back to the collective bargaining agreement discussion. Where yes, MLS doesn't show an operating profit when it comes to soccer activities, owners cannot access their SUM money without first being owners in Major League Soccer. Additionally, where the league is not yet profitable, the revenues are being offset by massive investments in infrastructure, like stadiums and academies. From the academy perspective, many clubs are yielding their first crop of youngsters ready for export. It is very likely that Major League Soccer will be profitable in the future. That brings us to where the players get their power. They do have substantial bargaining power because much of the marketing that goes along with the league would be impossible without the players. 
Much of the growth in American soccer has come through marquee MLS players like Landon Donovan, David Beckham, and Thierry Henry. Because of the power wielded by their predecessors, the players were able to make incredible gains that would destine U.S. soccer players to achieve many of the things that would make the league even more legitimate with the signing of the 2020 CBA. Achievements like the minimum salary rising above 100k a year, the average salary eventually rising above half a million dollars a year, mandatory charter flights for at least 16 travel legs, and perhaps most importantly, the players would be able to take a cut of the highly anticipated next MLS TV contract. These negotiations were actually signed in a massive advancement for the legitimacy of American soccer professionals in 2020 before the MLS's back tournament. To bring us into the news that prompted this episode, the league has implored a force majeure clause in the CBA that essentially gives them 30 days to renegotiate the previous CBA. This so-called act of God essentially states that due to the loss of revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic, an estimated $1 billion, if you believe Don Garber, the league will be unable to fulfill the promises it made in the 2020 CBA. If an agreement is not made by the end of the period, the 2020 CBA will be nullified. Right now, the league and MLSPA are going back and forth haggling over pay cuts and extending the current CBA by two years. At the moment, there is a good chance that a lockout may ensue. Now, with the MLS season already likely to be delayed due to the ongoing reality of COVID-19, how meaningful those lockouts would be remains to be seen. However, there is hope for a deal. The league wants to extend the current CBA, resulting in hundreds of millions of dollars in saving for the owners. The players need short-term security of having their salaries honored. The large majority of the players may not be around long enough to reap the staged-in benefits of the 2020 CBA. Many of the players may be willing to negotiate a full salary for an extension of the old CBA. The exact results remain to be seen. But thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, This topic really interests me, and I love talking soccer business, and I thought now would be a great time to weigh in. There probably won't be another CBA negotiation for a few years, so uh, I guess embrace the bumpy ride over the next month, and... I guess hope that uh, the two sides come to an agreement so we can catch some MLS next spring. Thanks again, guys.